0: what's up everybody welcome to the hot shot wake up this is your weekly wildfire update we'll get started right away it is a pl2 nationally a planning level two the southwest still sitting at the highest planning level five and the southern area is still sitting at a planning level two there's a lot going on that wasn't reported in the sit report but we'll start with those major fires before we talk about some other things that have been happening around the nation and even the globe. There's been some uh, bigger fires happening over in Europe and Italy and places like that. As always, we'll start with the biggest, which is the Calf Canyon fire. 46% contained as of right now and 312,057 acres. There's just about 3,100 people on the fire. There's 3,091 people reported on this fire. And as I'm recording this, there are red flags in the area, and there is some increased activity on that fire and kind of expected going into the weekend with the weather that's going to be predicted for Region 3 down in the southwest. There are some burn operations that are happening on that fire and have been for a while. A lot of prep going in, and that is some of the activity that we've been seeing here in the past couple of hours And fire managers are saying that the south zone and the west zone are still active in places, fire's still moving around a little bit, and they are looking to go direct wherever they can now, if it's applicable and feasible with the hotshot crews in some of these areas. They are now saying that if they can go direct in places that they want to look at that option, instead of all of this indirect that they've been doing, miles and miles and miles of indirect line has been put in. If they can't go direct, they're still looking at firing operations, and they're looking to tie one into Bull Creek uh, here in the next 24 to 48 hours, and that will kind of lock in a piece of ground, and they can maybe put a little bit more black on the map and call some more of this fire contained. On other parts of the fire, they have started mop-up, hose lays are in, and it's kind of... A whole whirlwind of operations happening on this fire. Everything from suppression repair in some places, mop-up, direct line, cold trailing, and then these burn operations that are happening on this west-southwest side. Aircraft are still hammering away where they can. They have sky cranes, all sorts of type 1 helicopters doing what they can to try to put a hurt on what is still active. As of this morning, they are saying that 745 structures have now been lost on this fire. And the total cost, I'll give anybody who's listening four seconds to guess now what the total cost is on this. But they are saying that the total cost is $126 million. So slowly approaching that quarter billion mark on this fire. And fire investigators are saying they still are investigating the cause of this Calf Canyon fire. And it will be a while before we know what happened there moving on the black fire really ate up a bunch of ground it has moved into the third largest fire in new mexico's history at 172,694 acres the black fire is now 13 percent contained they have 777 people on the fire lucky sevens across the board If the Blackfire was a slot machine, you would hit the jackpot. Some crews down there are saying that they did hit the jackpot with this assignment. It seems that if you're not the ones who are chipping, which we'll talk about, then you are scouting and burning and having a great old time in the wilderness. They are predicting for the Blackfire that it's going to be temps in the 90s going into the weekend, so very, very warm They have issued a couple new evacuations for the area because this thing does just keep on chunking away. Wouldn't be surprised if we see 200,000 acres here within a week. And because of those new evacuations, new rounds of structure triage have started in those areas while crews continue direct and indirect line construction. They have been burning for a while now on this fire. Both aerial and hand firing ignitions are taking place. They are saying that on the north side, it's more of a backing fire, and they are starting to see less activity up there as of this morning's report, and on the south side and a couple other flanks, they are seeing some more active fire, but in those mellower areas now, as most people dread when we hit this point of large-scale fires, they have commenced chipping operations Uh, They created a lot of slash piles and all of the prep that they did, and the forest is now taking care of all that slash, and they have crews now ramming Vermeer chippers in hopes that maybe it breaks down and they can take an extended break. But we should all know how that goes. Needs to get done, but not always the most glamorous. The fire investigators have now said that they're claiming a human-caused fire on this. But that's all the details they gave, and the the fire is still under investigation. That fire is $12.2 million, and two structures lost. It's an amazing comparison when this thing is about 60% the size in acreage as the Calf Canyon fire, but when it comes to cost, it's 10% the cost. So a lot of different things going into the Calf Cannon compared to the Black Fire, and the budgets or the billing that's going into this is vastly, vastly different. The Bear Trap Fire, again, for the folks that I'm I'm talking to down there, they're saying this is a pretty good gig as well. That's at 33,196 acres and 28% contained. They're still running firing operations down there. If you're on Division Oscar or Division Mike, you're probably burning out at this point in time. Uh, Both the hotshot crews and aircraft are involved in these firing operations on the bear trap as well. So hand ignitions and aerial ignitions are taking place in those divisions. And they've kind of put the north side in monitor status. And they're trying to, again, on this fire, finish up some chipping that needs to take place before they can call those division's good and get the uh, signature signed and the check in the box from the resource advisors fire managers are saying that the fire is filling in their containment lines nicely so all of their indirect lines that they've put in the fire is just kind of chunking away and filling in that extra space and then they can call that all contained if those lines do hold there's 588 people on that fire and currently at $14.5 million, and that fire is still under investigation. Arizona popped a fire, a really fast-moving grass fire. It's the Elgin Bridge Fire. It went 2,149 acres so far, and it's at 30% containment. Very, very fast-moving grass fire, like I said, and burned into the Mustang Mountains, but there was a pretty substantial air show that took place during the initial attack. And if you look at some of the aerial photos that they took of this fire afterwards, they did a very, very good job boxing it in in those light fuels in the valley floor and kind of just corralled it up into those mountains away from agriculture and different ranches that were in that area. That fire cost so far $755,000. There's two hundred and ten people on it and that fire is under investigation as well there was another small fire uh, in Arizona it's called the railroad fire they have already called it arson and they have cameras out there some forest cameras out there and they're saying that they're looking for a group of youths that were in a pickup that jumped out near the railroad started this fire and then took off they did catch the fire small Uh, it only was an acre or so but I just want to make it known that there's kids running around lighting fires and that's a massive, massive problem. Moving on to Colorado, there was the Parents Peak Fire in Durango, Colorado. This thing moved pretty quick until the sun went down. It ripped 102 acres late afternoon and then kind of fell on its face. There's 87 personnel there. I believe they have ordered another crew that hasn't gotten there yet or is just signing in. So those numbers will go up a little bit, and they'll have a little bit more power to try to contain this thing. And they are saying in the report that there's still short-range spotting going on, and the main mission is constructing handline and uh, direct-indirect handline around this fire. That fire as well is still under investigation. Last week, we talked about the Plumtaw fire in Colorado. That's in the San Juan National Forest. That thing's Pretty much wrapped up. It's it's getting there. There's still 364 people on the fire, is what's being reported. And the cost on the plum taw so far is just under 5 million at 4.9 million dollars. I've been talking to a couple people who are in Colorado. They're saying that if they just get this weekend of warming and drying, they're set and ready to go and primed for fire again. Uh, much of the state had precipitation and even some snow over the last week but they're still getting ias they're telling me that their districts are still popping ias every day but they're able to catch them small right now but if they get a warming and drying trend going into colorado for a weekend or a week the folks down there are saying that it's it's primed and ready to go like the the moisture that came wasn't sufficient enough to really put a damper on their early summer season Alaska had a few fires, not on the SIT report, not reported very much. Uh, the smoke jumpers took care of a fire on a walrus sanctuary island, and that was started by a fish and wildlife crew that was on the island for what they called sustainable hunting, and they had a burn barrel that uh, they were using while they were camping and that escaped the barrel and started a fire. And they sent six jumpers, a jump plane, and uh, a couple tankers and put that thing out pretty quick. And then there was also the Caribou Fire up in Alaska as well. So things are starting to pop up in Alaska. They have brought up more aircraft and tankers to Fairbanks and other places to prep for their fire season. And it's definitely going to be a place I'm going to be watching here for the next couple weeks because it seems like the starts have begun to come in in Alaska. And then to wrap it all up, Florida, they popped a couple fires as well. Not a lot of press on that. It's not federal land, it's state or private land, but there was a fire that this morning, it was 50 acres in the Everglades, looked like it was still still chunking away a little bit. And then there was a fire in the Okeechobee that was 50 acres. They they thought they had it wrapped up, but then they reported that something squeaked out and they had to send more resources back to try to catch that thing. But there are a couple fires going on in Florida as well. Hey, thanks to all the paid subscribers on Substack. As always, really appreciate that. We gave out some more donations this week. Two smoke jumpers, actually, both injured in some training jumps one was from the Feather River Hotshots who was on a detail and another a full-time smoke jumper he'd been with the forest service for some time Ben Elkin and we've we've discussed him before on the podcast with the things he's done for the wildland fire world in promoting and advocating for better pay and wages but two two great donations that went out to their charities for their injuries Uh, After they had uh, some practice jump accidents, unfortunate incidents where they are now out of commission. But without those Substack supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this kind of work, and we will continue to do this kind of work as long as that support is there. If you want to support this content, firefighters in need, their families that are in need when they get injured, or tragically if there is a fatality, you can... Go subscribe to our Substack. It's $6, and we take those funds and put it towards those types of donations. That's your operational update. We'll move on to the news. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. Earlier this week, down on the Calf Canyon fire, a firefighter from Missoula, Montana, off of an engine, was walking through a burned area and came upon a elk calf that they thought had died in the fire. So the firefighter approached this calf and quickly realized that the calf was still alive. Shocked to find it alive, the firefighters saying that they found it lying down in a pit of ash and approached it and saw movement and breathing and was blown away that this thing had even made it through this initial burn. After they removed the elk calf from the fire area, they took it to a local ranch, and then after that, the ranchers brought it to a rehab center where they have now paired it with what they're calling a surrogate elk mother. The folks at the rehab facility are saying that they're bottle feeding this this little guy and the surrogate has taken the calf under its watch and everything's going well and as planned so far. Ultimately, the plan with this elk calf is to release it back into the wild after fall hunting season and then release it back into the herd once that season's over and hopefully it will take with the herd. Rehab Center uh, down in Santa Fe is saying that they've done this before and they've had success reintroducing elk calves to herds and they have tracked different animals that they have done before and they find that they make their way back with the herd and they are they're they're welcomed and then everything's fine then. All of the media is making a comparison to Smokey the Bear and they're kind of turning it into that type of narrative and I wouldn't be surprised if their PR people spin this they have named the elk cinder and have started writing all sorts of stories about how this is the new smoky bear cinder the elk calf we'll see if it if it takes we'll see if that picks up and and they run with it but it is a great story to see that the the firefighters were able to save this baby elk I've seen all sorts of stuff like this on fires where there's animals and different types of things where firefighters do what they can to save it. One of the instances I can come up with offhand was on a hotshot crew, we were in the Gila National Forest, and we hiked out. I believe, I believe that forest is correct. There's so many, I, I don't remember all of them, but if my memory serves me correctly, we were hiking out of the Gila— That's because we weren't able to get a flight out. And actually, when we flew into this fire, they were going to fly our gear up, but then the winds picked up and it hit pumpkin time and uh, ended up coyoting out on this small little fire. But when we got to the end of our hike out and hit a trailhead, we found a horse just outside the burn area that had been tied to a tree, and what we only could assume was just left to die. It was horrible, worse for wear... You know, you could tell it hadn't eaten in a very long time. No energy lying on the ground. It looked like a dying horse. So, what we did, what we thought was appropriate, we ended up gathering up a bunch of apples from our lunches and leaving those for the horse. We got a QB and started pouring water in our buckets, in our helmets, for the horse to drink out of, which it did. And we kind of just chilled with the horse for a while and made sure that it drank a couple gallons of water and started eating these carrots and apples that we had for it and ultimately called animal services and let them know the trailhead and the road to get to 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 this horse. And they said that they would come and get it at that point in time. Uh, One of the overhead on the crew did cut the rope to the horse because we just, it's like this thing needs to be able to at least wander around. It's been tied to a tree for who knows how long. And by the time we left, it had actually stood up and was, you know, seemed like it was a little bit more with it, that it had some calories and some water in it. But these sorts of things happen all the time. Another story I'll toss out there real quick was we were on a fire down south of Cedar City in Utah. And it was an IA fire and a bunch of brush. It was horrible. There's a bunch of us hotshot crews down there. And uh, we ended up taking lunch, and I sat down with one of the Sawyers, basically right on the line, but we were sitting in the ash. And as I was eating my lunch, I just started taking handfuls of ash and kind of just sifting it through my hand. And then I saw movement in the ash, and so I pulled that up, and it was just a monster bumblebee. And I thought this thing was dead or about to die, and I blew the ash off of it. And it was just barely moving. You could see a wing twitch here and there, but it seemed like a a dead insect. But I had time on my hands, so I reached into my pack and I grabbed a bunch of shot blocks. And if you don't know what those are, those are like electrolyte sugar gummy blocks. And I bit a corner of that off, chewed it up, and then spit it in my hand, and then put some water from my water hose in my hand, and then set this fat bumblebee down in that sugar water and just held it in my hand as I was continuing to eat my lunch. The thing started to waddle around a little bit. You could tell it was trying to shake the ash off of it and, and started coming back to life. It ended up drinking the water that I had in my hand, and then so I put more in there with some more shop block. The Sawyer sitting next to me was looking at me like I'm a crazed maniac and couldn't believe that this thing was coming back to life. And probably it was probably 10 minutes now this thing was trying to buzz its wings and was very active walking around in my hand and got to a point where I was just like, I'm going to toss this thing up in the air and see what it does at this point in time. So I threw this bumblebee up in the air and sure enough, it spread its wings and it took off. Kind of a cool feeling when you're able to do stuff like that. Hopefully it went off and pollinated a couple of flowers and did the job that it was meant to do for a couple more days before it ultimately met its demise in its short lifespan. But awesome to hear that this elk was saved. There was some cool footage sent to me uh, yesterday about uh, some brown bears that were seen on Handline down on the Calf Canyon, some sizable bears walking around. So cool to see the firefighters helping out and being stewards of the environment. And I've always said that you know the fire's over when the birds come back. When you have the birds come back and they're sitting in the black, chirping away, that's a good indication that the fire in that area is all done. Congrats to the Missoula firefighters who took care of this elk. Love to see it. Wouldn't be surprised if it gets turned into a Forest Service PR stunt, where we now have Cinder the Elk t-shirts and stickers and advertisements saying, don't start these fires. But if you're a firefighter out there, you know you've probably seen stuff like this where you come across animals that have been injured or hurt by the wildfire. And you, you know, the natural thing to do is to go try and help. On the other side, I have seen animals run out of fires and start fires on the other side of the line. I've been in Nevada on fires where a jackrabbit will have its tail on fire and run across the line and everywhere it hops it starts new spot fires and we have to go chase them all down because this rabbit's on fire and running through the grass on the other side of the line it's kind of amusing but at the same time it's like oh oh man really this is what we're doing right now but it's a dynamic environment as we all know and you truly are out in the wilderness with the animals especially if you're spiked out and it's a great great feeling when you're able to help out this year, over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. There was a big splash in the news this week about a New Mexico tree nursery that had to ultimately be evacuated ahead of the Calf Canyon fire. This is one of the larger or maybe even largest tree nursery in the United States, and they provide different tree seedlings for all sorts of projects around the United States. It's Colorado, Utah, California, New Mexico, Arizona. They provide seedlings for all of these places aspen seed, uh, seedlings for utah and colorado uh different ponderosa seedlings uh they produce spruce there and they have a goal of trying to make these seedlings more drought resistant by picking the seedlings that are growing that seem to be most resistant and have all sorts of different experiments going on down there they produce about three hundred thousand tree seedlings a year they're trying to increase that production but as the fire approached they had to evacuate the facility they had over a million seeds stored there and then all of their seedlings that had they had already started producing that were in soil and starting to grow so they rush evacuated this place moved all of this stuff out there's still some stuff remaining there and it got a lot of attention because this is the facility that people rely on for reseeding most of the areas that are currently burning down there. But then, of course, ironically, they're the ones who get evacuated because of the fire. There's an organization called the New Mexico Reforestation Center, and they just applied for an $80 million grant from the federal government to receive funds for collecting more seeds and then tracking the plantings that happen around the United States. This organization is run through Arizona, excuse me, New Mexico Forestry and a bunch of university organizations all came together and have formed. It's new. It's a new committee or center, and $80 million in the grand scheme of things isn't that much. It's much, much less than the cost of the Catholic Canyon Fire and hundreds of times less than the money that gets sent other places and allocated other places by our government. When crews get staged places, oftentimes they are put on projects and sometimes planting projects or things along those lines where you go to tree plots and either cut down or improve areas around there. And I've seen some that have gone really, really well, and I've seen some that haven't gone so well. And on the ones that didn't go so well, it's just kind of an ultimate disappointment. I was never on this forester side and... I never counted trees or anything like that. But when we were staged places, we would have project work assigned to us. And one of them was we were going to go collect the cones that were put over tree seedlings down in Arizona. And they wanted us to count the mortality rate of the trees that we saw and the number of cones that we ended up picking up. Now, we had an entire hotshot crew to do this. So you can crush out a lot of work when you're just walking across an open area and your job is just to pick up cones and count how many are dead. So we probably we picked up thousands and thousands of cones and what we saw was probably a 99% mortality rate. And the 1% was lenient, like we were we were giving the local office, you know, as much realistic hope as we could that hey, maybe 1% of your trees lived. But the cones that they decided to put on, they were this new biodegradable cone that was supposed to protect the roots but still allow rain and sunshine in and it they didn't work like every tree seedling or sapling that we removed these cones from was just a charlie brown a charlie brown christmas tree it's just ragged and brown and dead and we all knew that it was probably hundreds of thousands of dollars if not a million plus project and it was They said it took two years to do. So when you see stuff like that, you're kind of disappointed that this is what's the outcome of these large, large projects for things like this. But that shouldn't discourage people from doing it. I just think there needs to be more oversight and maybe check in on these plots more often than you do because the last thing you want is two years of work and millions of dollars going down the drain. As we talked about on an earlier podcast, there are... Uh, drone companies out there that are now joining this reseeding reforestation industry—I guess I'll call it—and they are taking investors' money and buying up seed companies, and they're they're consolidating the seed market under one umbrella, which is ultimately a drone company that plans on taking over the industry. Also, just something to watch out for—you know, monopolies are bad. I think we all know that. But you would just hate to see, you know, if there is a monopoly on these seeds on in, the, in this industry, and then for whatever reason that company fails, what happens then? You know, what happens to all of the seeds, all of the inventory, all the patents on these things? Mass consolidation on an international scale isn't always good. But it seems like the New Mexico Reforestation Center is trying to do a good job down there I believe that the funding that they're asking for for collecting new seeds and tr- actually tracking the plantings that are happening is a step in the right direction and when it comes to the grand scheme of things when we look at multi-trillion dollar budgets 80 million is a drop in the bucket it's it's nothing so it was good to see this tree nursery evacuated and firefighters were able to stop it before it hit the nursery so there was no damage done and they are now talking about reoccupying that nursery and continuing the work that they've been doing I have traveled this year over all the United States through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains Cascades the coast brain, and the Sierra. I have traveled, traveled, traveled... Lastly, on today's episode, I wanted to talk about a poll that I just put out. There's still time on this poll, so I don't have final results or anything like that. But the poll asks if people wanted mandatory ICP or incident command, which is the overarching command system. It's the top level command system that is in charge of these fires. So would you want a mandatory ICP GPS tracking device given to every resource on every fire when they go out on the line? Right now, it's as I expected which was the majority of people would say no, they don't want that sort of thing. And right now it's about 70% no, 30% yes. About, I don't know, the last time I looked, there was over 700 votes. And the comments have been great. People are wondering why the majority of people are saying no, and the people saying no are like, why would anybody say yes to this? And then a litany of reasons why people voted the way they did. Now, this has been a subject that's been ongoing for a while in our industry. Even you know, after Yarnell, they started, that's when the big push happened. And measures have been implemented since then. So the Bureau of Land Management now has GPS locators on all of their vehicles in their fleet. So now they can track where their vehicles are in the nation moving around. And the Forest Service is implementing a similar policy where they're going to start having uh, GPS units on their vehicles so they can see where the vehicles are. But this new push is a step further, which is we are going to give maybe each squad on a hotshot crew gets one or each engine gets one. You know, if you're in a skidder, you get one, a water tender gets one. And then in ICP, there's this whole other division that's created with a 70-inch flat-screen TV where they have all sorts of capability to zoom in and click on and see who's where and what they're doing while they're on the incident. Obviously, a bunch of pros and cons on this. I'm doing an article about this, which is why I threw up the poll. And it originally came about, it's always been a topic of conversation, but someone in the industry who is involved in software for this type of thing reached out to me and wanted me to one know my opinion on it and two was was hoping that I would I would post this kind of in a positive light. And they weren't the only ones to reach out. There's there have been a handful. I'd say four or five people have reached out to me in the last 4 months on this subject. And everybody who has reached out to me is actively in that GPS tracking and software industry. And they're seeing that I have Some poll and some audience coverage where that they thought I would take this and be like, oh, there's, let's, let's, let's go with this. This is something we should do. But what I told them was, I don't think it would be the majority would want it. I don't think it would be widely accepted. And I'm willing to test that by putting up a poll. And on the poll results, I'll write an article and take all the pros and cons and put it in there. And as of right now, it's as expected that about 70%, which is a large majority of people, don't want this. We'll see where the poll ends up. I don't think it's going to even out to like a 50-50. I think it's kind of settled in and we're starting to see where everybody stands on, on a larger scale. But look for that article coming out probably later next week where I'll cover people's reasonings, why they have said yes or no, what the final numbers are, and the legislation that's currently in Congress and has previously been voted on in this area. They're Bullard hard hats, I'm sure you've heard of them. They It's what everybody wears. They came out with a prototype a couple years ago where they had a ch- GPS chip built into the helmet. So you have a GPS chip in the bucket that you have been given. I don't know how that poll would look. Like, I bet if I wrote, do you want a GPS tracking device in your helmet... I think it would be even more people saying no. I could be wrong on that, but I think people are aware enough where you don't want that sort of signal always on top of your head. Like, there's, there's probably health repercussions with that. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I haven't studied that, but I've read other studies on Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and cell signals and how that affects the human brain when it comes to health. So ultimately, I don't think that would be a very popular idea. It ended up not going through. And again, I'll cover more of that in the article. There's a lot going on in that realm where people, you know, there's a couple couple different things. People in the industry want to make money. And how do you make money? You sell more units. How do you sell more units? Well, you stick them in everybody's hard hat or you make it mandatory for everybody to have one. Two, they're saying it's a safety thing. You know, we need to know where where everybody is, maybe we can move them and that will reduce casualties. And then there's a lot of people saying that this would just increase micromanagement of resources out on the line. I'd like to know what everybody thinks. You're already sending in a bunch of thoughts on it. And after this article comes out, I'd like to hear everybody's comments on where you think this is all going and your reactions to how the poll went. Again, thanks to everybody who subscribes to the Substack. It allows us to do what we do and provides donations to firefighters in need if you go to our Substack, it's just six dollars to subscribe and it keeps all the podcasts articles content daily fire updates streaming out for everybody to keep updated on as always checking on your homies say what's up ask how they're doing if you hit r&r eat some good food stretch hydrate and as always you got to get up and get it done Uh Oh,